Hello there. Um, it's been a while since I've done a Facebook Live video. I was traveling last week in Grand Rapids and um, I've been busy and kind of slipped away from me. So I wanted to quickly do a little live Facebook in case you've forgotten about me. Uh, it would be very depressing. Um, uh, it's been a kind of it's a, a crazy day. Uh, I've got two talks to give tomorrow, which I'm excited about. Uh, one in LA uh, at Sunday service. If you're in LA, come see it. 11.45 um, at 3.43 South Church Lane. Um, and then I've got my Omega course starting tomorrow. And um, I'm going to be having a little small group here in my house. And um, we've got like over 200 people signed up. Uh, he'll be joining us from all over the world to explore uh, religionless Christianity together. So it's been an exciting time. Um, uh, but as I say, I don't want to neglect um, this. I've had a real fun time doing the uh, Facebook Live stuff. Some people are starting to click in. Hi there, Randall. How's it going? Um, oh, Timothy, you're, you're doing the Omega course. Well, do, well done. Uh, it should be fun. Hopefully you'll enjoy the readings and um, I wish we could all kind of be doing it together. But uh, I love how this technology means that, um, you know, I can talk to people all around the world, can engage with people um, and uh, they don't have to fly to where I am or vice versa. I'm, by the way, enjoying um, a little gin and tonic right now. Uh, as I say, last week I was in uh, Grand Rapids and had a really fun time uh, with Mars Hill and I did two other events. You can go online and watch the sermon that I gave if you want. Um, I think it's, uh, you'll find it on my Facebook. I was talking about grace. Uh, but I also did a little pints and parables night, which uh, was really fun. There was like 140 of us packed into this bar in, uh, in Grand Rapids in the city centre. And... Um, we had, I don't know if any of you were there, but oh, what kind of gin? Reed says, I'm gonna tell you in a second, promise. Um, we were packed into this bar and it was a really fun night. The PA didn't work for the first 35, 40 minutes. So that was a nightmare. We had to try and get that fixed. But once we got started, you know, things went, went to plan. But anyway, when I was there, um, I got a gift of two bottles of gin. So I'm drinking one tonight. And this was from the deconstructionists. There's a new podcast in town called The Deconstructionists, and they're very good. Really lovely guys, really energetic, thoughtful. Um, and, uh, you know, already their podcast is becoming really big. So check them out, The Deconstructionists. I'm not just saying that because they bought me a bottle of gin, but that, you know, that helps. If you want me to promote something, you know, gifts are my love language and bottles of gin. So this is a bourbon barrel gin uh, and it is very tasty. I'm just having a little tonic water with it. Um, what can I say about it? You can really kind of taste the bourbon edge of this gin. Um, so very, very nice. Anyway, let me see anybody else is talking to me. 10 comments over it. What do you think of the Enneagram? Haha, <laughs> that's a good question. I know a lot of people here into the Enneagram. Um, let's see, love language. Yes, it is Pamela, my love language. By the way, I will try and get some of your questions like the Enneagram and various things, but I feel like I should start off by saying something. Um, and tonight, I guess I've, I've been spending the last few weeks knee deep 
in reading Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich, and primarily this book here, Volume 1 of the Systematics, because tomorrow I'm giving my lecture on him. And um, I've always liked Paul Tillich. Um, he's one of the few theologians I really enjoy. I think I've said that to you before. Uh, one of the reasons is he's so philosophical. If, by the way, you're interested in philosophy, like, you know, really good philosophy, you're interested in the history of philosophy, uh, you're interested in its basic questions, like the most basic question in philosophy is basically, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, but even more than that, um, one of the questions that has interested philosophers over history has been, what is the something that we are? You know, so we're surrounded by stuff. Uh, what is that? <laughs> and, and what joins them all together? Like there's lots of different types of things in the world. There's cups, numbers, ideas, uh, but they're all things. Well, what are they? And um, if, ever, <laughs> if ever you're crazy enough to actually think that's an interesting question, actually Paul Tillich, is a really good person to read because he really knows his philosophy, but he also writes an incredibly clear way. It's not easy. I mean, not, you know, it's not gonna be reading Harry Potter or anything like that, but if you persevere with it, uh, I think he's one of the clearer writers. Um, so interestingly, I'm kind of recommending a theologian uh, to, to understand philosophy, um, just partly because he's, he's just such a good writer and he really understands the philosophical tradition. Um, I'll say a few things about Paul Tillich actually that I won't be mentioning tomorrow, so I don't feel like I'm doubling up on material. But uh, Paul Tillich, he was interested in philosophy because he wanted to understand the human condition, the human predicament. What does it mean to be? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in the world? Uh, what are our fundamental problems? Not like, oh, okay, you know, it's cold or, you know, I, I, I can't get the job I want or whatever. I mean, those are legitimate problems, but, but what, are, are there any human problems that actually transcend individual context? That's part of just being a creature of language. To be human is to face certain things, like, for example, the idea that you're going to die. So wherever you live in the world, um, that is a reality. And... You know, in, in some respects, every culture has had to deal with that in their own way and find ways of trying to answer that question of death or come to terms with it. So Paul Tillich spends a lot of time thinking about, you know, the human condition. And he uses philosophy to do that because he thinks philosophers are really, you know, some of the people who are best placed to really understand those questions. And then what he does is he tries to couple that with theology. He tries to, he tries to argue that, that uh, Christianity can offer answers to those problems and that we really have to get to the central problems to understand what those central answers might be. And so it's called correlational theology. Um, it's a big thing because so he correlates philosophical, the problem of existence with kind of the 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 answer of Christianity that's that's what he's doing and I'm much I I love Tillich but I'm much more interested in the first part of his project than the second part um, but he, he does the first part uh, very very well um, but 
I, the reason why I'm reading Tillich and I've been so immersed in him is because this course that I'm doing is all about religionless Christianity. And some people in the last few weeks have been asking, you know, what do you mean by religionless Christianity? What does this term mean? Some people think it's just made up. Some people think that I made it up. Uh, a few people have thought that um, I'm kind of claiming some new tradition. Um, but actually, I'm, I'm talking about something that has been around for a long time. And, you know, it's, I, I wish I could say that I made it up, <laughs> that, that, that it's my kind of idea. Uh, I'm definitely in that tradition. And I'm doing a form of radical theology, or sorry, religionless Christianity, which is connected to radical theology. And I'm partly in that tradition. Um, but yes, it, the term itself originates from, anyone guess? I know someone's going to guess. You've got three seconds to write the answer. Uh, it's about to come up. Who's that? Hey, it's with a one and only Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, the, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, yeah, there you go, Keith, too slow, too slow. Um, I, I'm sure, I'm sure the term goes back before Bonhoeffer, you know, I don't know, but Bonhoeffer's really the one who coined it or made it popular or gave it a lot of kind of context, right, and, and gave it a lot of meaning. Now, he wrote it about religionless Christianity um, from prison. Uh, in his letters and papers from prison. And it was the last thing he wrote before he was executed by the Nazis. And so we don't actually have a very systematic reflection on what he means. And, and that's kind of why so many different interpretations have arisen over the years. So many people have claimed to be in the line of Bonhoeffer. Uh, and and, and uh, yeah, so the the ideas were never able to be fully fully expressed it's kind of like pascal's pensee um or or you know finding some fragments from kind of some pre early greek uh pre-socratic philosopher um in one sense you're sad because you're like oh, i wish i wish they had chance to really like flesh this out but in another sense it's exciting because they kind of sketched something and we have to fill in the blanks now, I'll actually read something from this very briefly, and then I'll maybe talk about it. So, in one of the letters he writes to his friend, uh, he says, I find, after all, that I can write a little more. Uh, and he's just referring there to being in prison where he only gets a certain amount of time to write. Uh, you know, he, he, he's, uh, you know it, it's, it's difficult for him to, to be able to write letters to get the stuff out to people. He says, I, I find that I can actually write a little more. He says, the Pauline question of whether circumcision is a question is a condition of justification seems to me in present day terms to be whether religion is a condition of salvation. So here he's saying to his friend, in the same way that one time in the past people argued whether circumcision was necessary in order to enter into the Christian life. For him, he's saying today the question is whether religion is necessary for Christianity. Uh, freedom from circumcision is also freedom from religion. I often ask myself why a Christian instinct often draws me to the more religionless people than the religious ones. Now by that, I don't mean in the least that I have any evangelizing intention but I might say in brotherhood. 
while I'm often reluctant to mention God by name to religious people, because that name somehow seems to me here not to ring true. And I feel myself to be slightly dishonest. It's particularly bad when others start to talk in religious jargon. I then dry up almost completely and feel awkward and uncomfortable. To people with no religion, I can on occasion mention uh, God by name calmly and as a matter of course. Religious people speak of God when human knowledge has come to an end or when human resources fail. In fact, it is always the deus ex machina that they bring to the scene, either for the apparent solution of insoluble problems or as strength in human failure. Always, that is to say, exploring human weakness or human boundaries. Um, and then he goes on to say, basically, is it possible to speak about God and religion not at the place of weakness, but in the place of joy and strength and kind of human kind of flourishing. So in this, there's lots in that. So the first is he's saying that uh, he's asking the question whether religion is required for full participation in Christian life. Um, and we have to come to what he means by that. But then he says, and it's weird that my Christian instinct, he says, draws me to more religionless people than religious people. So he finds himself in community and at one and much more comfortable around people who espouse no religion whatsoever. Uh, people who don't have a need for religion at all. And in fact, he goes further than that. He says, not only do I feel so comfortable with supposedly you know, religionless people, uh, I feel really awkward and uncomfortable around religious people. I feel embarrassed. Uh, I dry up completely. I feel awkward. Um, now, this is an experience that many of you, I think, will be able to relate to. I have, I have a good friend who's a Christian musician, and he's always embarrassed. If we're out at a bar or something chatting and someone asks, what do you do? He's always embarrassed um, because uh, if the person is very religious, often it will end up in some weird, bizarre conversation. And if they're not, he's often written off as a crazy but he's much more comfortable being around supposedly, you know, people who aren't into religion. But not because he's embarrassed or ashamed of his faith. Um, strangely, it feels like the Christian instinct that it's it's something in him that's that is basically um, saying that Christianity isn't about saying this is what I believe about X, Y, and Z. Um, it's about something much deeper. It's about a way of being, and um, and and the the term gets in the way of that. So anyway. Bonhoeffer is having this experience. Um, and then he says that one of the things he's uncomfortable about is that God is often just this word that's used um, by us in our weakness. When we don't have an answer for something, it's God. Something terrible happens, it, uh, you know, God can fix it. Or something we don't understand, God must have done it. So God's this weird term that we use to explain the inexplicable or to make sense of what seems senseless. Um, or to help us sleep at night. And he calls this the deus ex machina. So he's defining religion in terms of a, a belief in God as this being who answers questions, who helps us sleep at night, who makes us feel good about ourselves. And he's kind of questioning that definition of God. And this is where religion as Christianity kind of kicks off. 
Because Bonhoeffer then goes on to say, he says, what if uh, we're supposed to give ourselves to our neighbour and our world, lose ourselves in commitment to making the world a better place, to enjoying life, having real joy and pleasure in our existence, in the wonders of life, and to try to help others experience those wonders as well. And actually, that's what faith is about. And, and in doing that, in, in letting go of God as this object that you talk about and giving yourself to the world, you actually fulfill the call of Christianity. That's conversion, or in, in classical terms, that's sanctification. A, a, a life fully lived that um, you know, helps and heals people uh, in whatever way that is, through art, through social justice, um, through you know real care for one's family, one's neighbor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But whatever it is, this giving oneself over in commitment to the world in love um, is really what is what Christianity is about. And in doing that, as Bonhoeffer says, this is the interesting thing. Bonhoeffer says you don't just you get you get rid of all the religious stuff and you give yourself to the world. Because the difference is, it's not quite uh, old school nineteenth century humanism. Because Bonhoeffer wants to say this is actually the fulfilment of the gospel. This is actually what it's all about. And in, in that giving oneself to the world, he says, you will find God. Um, now, this is interesting because at first it seems that, you know, we can all go with that. Give yourself to the world. You find God there in the midst of giving oneself to the other. But actually, when you think about it, there is a... How radical idea at the bottom of that. Because if I love you, the idea of, of forgetting about you and going and serving the poor doesn't really help you. If I love you, I want to spend time with you, right? Um, now, we may do some really nice stuff together, etc., etc. But but if, if I love you, I want to hang out with you as much as possible. When Bonhoeffer is saying, if you love God, you do want to hang out with God. You want to hang out with your neighbour, with the oppressed, with the poor. You want to you want to do your bits at trying to make the world a more a more beautiful and wondrous place. Discovering that wonder and helping more people engage with it, right? Um, so there's a different understanding of God here than just another person like you or me. Um, there is this notion that God is kind of like what Tillich would call the ground of being. God is the ground out of which we arise. And by giving ourselves to the world, we reconnect with God. Because God is not an object that you connect with. God is rather the truth that you discover in connecting with real people and real projects and real social justice. Um, now, I don't, you know, we could talk forever on that, but it's actually already 20 minutes. Um, and uh, that's what we're gonna do in the Omega course. But religionless Christianity in short is this interesting change in how we understand God. And God is no longer thought of primarily in terms of some being that's just like us. And God is, uh, God is thought of as this grinding, this ground of being uh, that, we are, that is not a stranger but we are estranged from. We're not, it's, not some, it's not a stranger we meet God and like at a bus stop and say hello or whatever. It's that as we connect with the wonder and beauty of life and the world, and as we commit ourselves to projects of change, 
uh, we reconnect with the ground out of which we arose. And in doing that, we find ourselves having joy, fulfillment, good, having good news and being good news. Um, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. As I say, I'm just literally scraping the surface of this. Uh, if we went further tonight, I would talk about how Paul Tillich takes these ideas and he says that if you want to find fullness of life, you have to find an ultimate concern, um, which is a way of saying giving yourself to projects, giving yourself to worthy uh, causes. And in doing that, you'll find you know, a real sense of a real sense of fulfillment and faith fertility is ultimate concern. So Christianity is not a form of belief. It's not even a form of practice. It's a form of being. It's a way of living towards the world. It's a kind of it's not like a mental attitude, although it involves the mental attitude. It's not an emotional thing, although it involves the emotions. It's not purely will, but it involves the will. It is the whole person giving themselves wholly to the world um, in ultimate concern uh, is what is what Tillich calls faith. So a little bit of an overview. Let's have a look at see if you've got any questions um, or thoughts. I'm just going to randomly have a look. Um, oh, Peter, do you have shelves in Dublin? I don't live in Dublin. I live, I, I'm from Belfast. But live in LA, but I did have I did have shelves in Belfast. I just can't afford bookshelves at the moment. But you know, I'm going to get bookshelves eventually. I promise, I'm going to get bookshelves. But it is ridiculous. Look at this; books are stacked up everywhere. Um, let's see. My girlfriend says hi. Hi, Alex's girlfriend. Um, let's see. I love Tillich. Lots of love for Tillich. Lots of love for Tillich, which is great. Um, there's a there's a question from Alex. You know, how do you think Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity compares to Tillich? Um, right, so I've, I've been reading um, them both, but primarily Tillich uh, recently. And um, the way I see it is they're, they're very closely connected in many ways. Uh, Bonhoeffer didn't live as long as obviously as Tillich. Bonhoeffer was executed during the Second World War. Tillich went on to write more. So I kind of feel like Tillich represents one way that you could interpret what Bonhoeffer is doing in letters and papers from prison. That's probably the way of saying it is Bonhoeffer, I think implicitly has this notion that God is a ground of being and he doesn't explicitly explore it until it kind of really does it. So I think there's real connections there, but, but who knows? Um, I'm sure Bonhoeffer talked about Tillich somewhere. I was reading him earlier and he was talking about bon, uh, Boltman. So I'm sure he's talking about Tillich as well, but um, I do I do see them as quite closely aligned uh, in, in many ways. Uh, does religionless Christianity include some sort of community? Uh, yeah, for 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 Bonhoeffer and Tillich and for myself, yes, absolutely. You know, for Bonhoeffer, um, community was incredibly important. Life together, as you call it, was incredibly important. Having rituals together, um, and for Tillich. You know, because I've been reading him, I, I, I know him better. Um, he thinks that, that we need community because, uh, well, one is we're communal beings, but two is we need language to put to our experiences of the ultimate. 
and he calls it symbolic language, but he says communities have symbols and rituals that allow them to in participate in uh, this truth that they cannot intellectually grasp. So, and, and for Tillich, a symbol is, is not a sign. A sign points to something, but a symbol participates in something. So the American flag can be a symbol to people. So it's not just a sign that points to your country. It's a symbol that that um, that con connotes, you know, uh, liberty, freedom, uh, you know, the pursuit of happiness, these kind of things. So if you burn a flag, you're not burning a sign, a signpost. You're burning a symbol. You're actually attacking, you know, if that's a symbol for you, you're attacking more than just what's visible. Um, so that's what a symbol is for Tillich. And for Tillich, we need communities that have symbols that help us participate in the truth that these symbols participate in, but they can never fully grasp, they can never fully be made clear. So Tillich is very against um, literalistic language. But interestingly, it's because he says literalistic language is too little. People say, oh, is, is, is Tillich saying that Christianity is just a symbol? Uh, Tillich wants to turn that around and says, if you're a literalist, you're reducing Christianity to just literalism, which is like, you know, a body rose from the dead, or there's a God sitting out there in a throne that you might like. But but symbolic, oh my goodness, that's so much more than literalism. Like that's, it's not less than, it's more than. Um, uh, symbolic language is about participating in the death and life of Christ. Or it's, it's symbolic language is about participating in notions of death and resurrection in baptism, what, what, whatever it is. So a symbol is deeply important. And in order to be able to have any form of participation in these symbols, really a community is, is, is very important. Even if it's a community of people on Facebook or, or friends, you know, it doesn't need to be church on a Sunday morning. So for, for all of those figures and for myself for different reasons, um, yeah, community, um, I think is important, not to solidify and hold certain beliefs, but rather because we gather around certain symbols that, that um, you know, that are beneficial to us. Let's see. Um, oh yeah, Dan's saying this, your faith is expressed outside the religious system more than in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know Tillich would respect that like deeply. Um, unlike myself, uh, but so, but he ultimately, you know, he, you being here as part of this is kind of like, you know, we're having a form of community together and we probably share some similar language. And beautifully, Tillich says that, that we all have symbolic language, you know, wherever, say, I don't know, Dan, if you're into, you know, Tillich or Boltman or some of the mystics, I don't know, but say, for example, you're into some of these thinkers and you like Tillich. Um, Tillich says, well, you can, you can believe what you believe either as an unbroken myth or as a broken myth. He says an, an unbroken myth is you get into somebody and you think it's completely true. It's literal. It's like absolutely true. Um, and that's fine. That's most of us are like that at some point in our lives. But there comes a point when it gets challenged and it gets poked at. And at that point, we either get really defensive and repress all our questioning and, and become like a warrior for what we, we affirm. Or we can walk away completely. Or, says Tillich, we can embrace it as a broken myth. And I suppose it's like this. When you fall in love with someone, if you're young, you might feel that they are the only person for you. 
they're the only person like that, that they, they were designed for you that's like an unbroken myth you literally believe it you say like if i hadn't met that person i would not be happy my life would be incomplete whether you believe god did it or just happenstance there's one person in the world for you and bam you find them <laughs> now when that gets questioned as it kind of does or my my uh signals weak uh when when that gets questioned you can either kind of break up the relationship but there's a different way especially if it's a good relationship is you can continue to kind of believe it you say you're the only one for me and yet you know it's a you know it's a symbol it, it's expressing your deep love but you don't mean it literally like you do know that maybe if you haven't met you might have met somebody else you kind of know that but it doesn't weaken the relationship at all. You still use the same language as the, un as, the, as the unbroken myth. You still say, you know, it was written in the stars. History stopped when I met you. You know, like you complete me. You still use all the same language. But the language is, is in one sense, has what Tillich would call doubt and risk involved. Because, and, and that's important for Tillich. Tillich says... You know, whenever you embrace something like that, there is doubt. Like, you could be wrong. This relationship could completely mess you up or mess them up. It could be a disaster. And so there's courage. You have to have courage. You embrace it courageously, knowing that there's risk, knowing that there's doubt. Now, you don't doubt all the time, hardly at all, probably. And you don't experience the risk most days. But it's there as a potential. And every now and again, it arises and it comes up. And for Tillich, it's having the courage to face that. So, so again, Tillich is saying it's not, you've got like, once you have the unbroken community, which is the community, we have the truth, we have the answer, and that breaks apart, sometimes the temptation is to leave community entirely, and we have to do that. For